Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we'll be continuing our last message in the series, Remembering the Reformation, with Dr. John Newfeld. So let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message called Solo Deo Gloria. In anticipation of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and in celebration of it, I've taken a week in which I have decided to review what has become known as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura refers to scriptures alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Solo Christo, Christ alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. And today, Solo Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. See, one of the reasons why I am sure that a great many contemporary evangelicals are forgetting the lessons of the Reformation is because we have forgotten that important lesson to the glory of God alone. There are numerous signs that this is so, that is, that we have forgotten the glory of God. For one, would you notice how often when we proclaim the gospel, we begin with the glory of man and the glory of our plans in life, the glory of our personal fulfillment, and so forth. You know, think of how often we begin with describing God's role in our lives as if God's principal goal and role is to help us find personal fulfillment. I remember reviewing an evangelistic tract some time ago in which there appeared a pie chart on the cover. You know, each piece of the pie represented a part of a human life. One pie piece represented work life, and then there was financial concerns and sex life and future plans and so forth. And then one piece of the pie was enlarged and separated from the graph to make it stand out. It said, relationship with God. And underneath the chart was a question. Is there a missing element in your life? You know, I stared at that tract and wondered what this had to do with the God of the Bible. God is not the missing element of a life that already has so many things in place. God doesn't fill the empty room in our house. He tears our house down and builds a new one for his glory. Or consider how we sometimes think about the cross. You know, some time ago, a very popular and in many ways a God-glorifying song about the cross was sung. It contained the words, above all powers, above all thrones, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were there before the world began. Now, that song really contained a lovely melody and lovely lyrics and in many ways reflected the greatness and the glory of God. But there was one line in the song which reflected that we really have lost a very crucial element of solo deo gloria. It was the line, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. See, that line was a reference to the cross, that the highest thought that Jesus could have on the cross was of you and I. Now, even though the songwriter rightly brought attention to the fact that the cross brought mercy and grace to undeserving sinners, but because of that, he assumed Jesus was thinking of us above all while on the cross. And it is this, that so many can't imagine Jesus thinking of anything else while on the cross that tells me we really do need a new reformation. John 17 contains what has become known as Christ's high priestly prayer. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and immediately after the events in that room, he's going to walk to the Mount of Olives, and there he will pray until drops of blood fall to the ground from burst blood vessels in his forehead. 
Then he's going to be arrested and tried and crucified. And according to the Gospels, he knew with absolute clarity that that was going to happen. Now, in John 17, the disciples hear him praying right before the events of the cross. I'm reading the first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice Jesus' mindset here. Father, glorify or shine the light of your glory onto your Son while I am on the cross. And I, in turn, as I am dying for the sins of the world, will shine the light of glory onto you. Why? Because above all things, what the cross does is declare the eternal glory of God. Above all things, when Jesus hung on the cross, his first thought was on the glory of God. Now, if that sounds strange, let me take us through a brief study of God's eternal motivation for all that he does. So let's begin with God's motivation in creating human beings. According to Isaiah 43, verse 7, God created every human being for his glory. According to Psalm 25, verse 11, David prays for forgiveness and listen to his words. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So then, why should God forgive David? David says, God, do it for the sake of the greatness of your name. Or be motivated to act in mercy as a demonstration of just how magnificent you are. Let's move to the very famous Psalm 23. In verse 3, David writes, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In Psalm 31, verse 3, David writes, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Again, whether it is God leading David in the paths that are good or right, or whether God is protecting his life, David says, I know why you're doing these things. You're doing this because you want to highlight what an overwhelmingly glorious God you are. Now, do you think those are just a few isolated verses? Well, think again. Psalm 79, verse 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Or as God says in Isaiah 37, verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. Or Isaiah 48, verse 9, for my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Then two verses later, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Indeed, if we pile these passages one on top of another, we begin to understand Moses' prayer in Exodus 32. You know, Israel has just sinned in the incident of making a golden calf that they worshipped in the desert. God tells Moses, you know, you leave me alone that I might consume them. And Moses responds in one of the boldest prayers in human history. Exodus 32 verse 12 records Moses as saying, Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? In other words, 
Moses implores God to act on the only basis upon which he knows God will act for the sake of his glory. Indeed, as the Apostle John would say so simply and yet so eloquently in 1 John 2, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And so I hope you can see that that the lines, he thought of me above all, is simply a misunderstanding of the very basis upon which God always acts. He thought of his glory above all. But those lines also betray, I think, that we have lost something so fundamental to our faith that previous generations thought of so naturally. Other generations thought constantly of solo deo gloria. And in our generation, it's almost as if we need to be taught something that seems to us as if it's come from a foreign culture. And that's why, for so many of us, the idea that, as David would express in Psalm 8, this sense of wonder that the altogether glorious God who acts for his own glory would be mindful of us, you see, that seems just foreign to us. That's because, as one popular preacher said some time ago, God offers us salvation because he knows he can't live without us. It's as if he believed that God needs us. God's incomplete and deeply dissatisfied with his life without us. And so, not so subtly, we've changed from solo deo gloria to the glory of man. And God exists to give us purpose and meaning, but when we lack it, or when we suffer, or when we encounter disappointment and tragedy, then we turn to God in anger and we say to him, you've broken your bargain with me. You exist to fulfill me. And if you don't keep up your end, I'll hurt you by breaking my fellowship with you. See, it's never occurred to many of us to say what the great American preacher Jonathan Edwards stated. He said, God regards himself infinitely above his regard for all other things. Or as theologian Daniel Fuller said, all God's energy and the intensity of his feeling are fully directed towards delighting in the worth of himself. For his glory, for his glory alone, solo Deo Gloria. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? Well, these are questions that live in the minds of many young Christians in our culture. Dr. John Newfeld said, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they are asking about gender identity. Well, we're responding to that need by hosting InDoubt's first InDoubt Live event about sexual identity. In Doubt Live will include speakers Dr. John Newfelt, leader of Ethos Ministries and Pastor Dave Johnson, In Doubt's own ministry leader Isaac Dagno, and Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada. And the evening will also include an open forum for questions and worship led by Brittany Dagno. If you're a young adult or part of a young adult Christian group, join us for In Doubt Live, Sexual Identity, happening Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clova Theatre in Surrey, British Columbia. Admission for In Doubt Live is free, and you can discover all the details at live.indoubt.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. One of the reasons many of us can't grasp the glory of God is because we find it offensive. Think of it this way. 
Imagine we met a human being, a man or a woman who declared, I do everything I do for my glory. I want my name to be great. I I form a friendship with you because I think of my glory first, my reputation, and this is an act of consideration for myself. Now, most of us would think that to be the work of an egomaniac. It is, from our perspective, the worst of all possible motives. And yet, as we've seen over and over again, God overtly states that he does all things for his glory. What's necessary for us is to consider why it is that it's evil when a human being acts for their glory and why it is that it's good and righteous and altogether praiseworthy when God acts for his glory. But before I explain why that's so, I fear that some of you, my dear listeners, just reject this. It can't be true that God acts out of his glory. So because of this, I feel I have to again make the case. On top of that, God openly states that he does all things for his glory, but consider now even further evidence. Let's read Ezekiel 39 verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Now, here we find an addition to what we've already heard. God's not only acting for his glory, but he describes himself as profoundly jealous. Or listen to Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. And so in jealousy, if we should seek after another God, God becomes so enraged and unleashes his wrath and destroys those who would do so. Now, please notice that I have not yet explained why this is a wonderful trait in God. I'm merely trying to make the point that the Bible as a whole describes God in precisely this way. It's not a matter of personal opinion. This is a matter of the testimony of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Indeed, the last book of the Bible simply rings out with statements dedicated to the glory of the one true God. Indeed, listen to the hymn of praise that's recorded in Revelation 15, 3-4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, in those words, we find why God, who seeks his own glory above all things, is to be worshipped, and any human being who seeks his or her own glory above all things is to receive nothing but contempt and ridicule. Why? Well, let's let God explain that to us. God is speaking to Job in Job 40, verses 9 to 14. Remember, God's speaking to Job, but he's also speaking to us. Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the outflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. And and if you can do this, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save. Oh, I hope you heard that. The reason why it's contemptible for any human being to act for their glory is because they are not altogether glorious. 
If they act for their glory, they're lying and attempting to conceal the truth. They are not glorious. They are dust and ashes, and God himself will abase them and bind them into the world below. But on the other hand, it would be contemptible if God did not act for his own glory, for that would be a lie. God's glory, that is, his beauty, his eternal existence, his absolute power, his complete knowledge of all things, his indescribable wisdom, his eternal existence independent of all things, his unchangeableness, his timeless existence, his omnipresence, his undiluted holiness, his consistent truthfulness, his perfect justice and righteousness, his mercy and his wrath, all these things have no equal and can have no equal. For God to not value these things, that is, for God not to value himself above all things, would be a lie. To seek his glory simply means that God seeks that which is ultimately valuable. No, no, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Solo Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Now, to the Reformers 500 years ago, as they were carefully reading their Bible and paying attention to God's revelation of himself, they were struck by the glory of God. And it also became plain to them that if we claim in some way to take credit for our own salvation, and thus attempt to argue that we, through our works, contribute to our salvation rather than giving all glory to God, well, this would be the vilest evil of all. And so to argue that the church has a treasury of merits that can be applied to any human being rather than arguing that only God has a treasury of merits, well, this whole matter is about God's glory. And to argue that God should recognize our good works and owe us salvation rather than that God should recognize his own good works in mercy granting us salvation. Again, all of this was about who should receive glory. There simply can be no greater evil than to fail to give all glory to God, and there can be no greater virtue than to attribute all glory to God. Everything in the Reformation hung on that one thing, to God alone be the glory. And that's our challenge. Far be it from us to say that Jesus thought of us above all when he was on the cross, rather that Jesus thought of the glory of God above all. And then to add with a stunning realization this amazing truth that God demonstrates his glory by having mercy on undeserving sinners. Well, this thought fills the heart with gratitude that is unceasing and demands we sing out in praise to the one true glorious God. And how about you, my dear listener? Is the most enjoyable thought that you have centered on the loveliness of God? Or are your most enjoyable thoughts on other things? Might we all admit that we have no greater sin than the sin of failing to find our ultimate enjoyment in anything other than the one true God? To fail to honor God above all things is more evil than a thousand Auschwitzes, more hateful than the worst crime that we can afflict on one another. See, all of us need to bow before God and confess that we have not found our moment-by-moment joy in him, and we need to plead with God for a new heart that we might find in our own experience that we would literally begin to pant after the living God. It is this, this hunger after God that, that needs to be recaptured in our church today. Now, before I end this week on celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I, I need to state two things. First, the Reformation was anything but perfect. 
For me, there were several matters that are the greatest failures of the Reformation. The Reformers were unable to divorce themselves from reliance on the state. Luther was protected by powerful princes who were looking for a way to get out from under the tax burden of Rome. It took people like the Anabaptists to recognize that if the church is under the authority of Christ alone, then princes and city councils and governors ought not to dictate terms to the church. Now, another failure of the Reformation is for me that it did not immediately set the stage for worldwide evangelism. That would have to wait for others to see the natural implications of the Reformation. Rather, the politics of the Reformation led to a horrible war in Europe. And so the Reformation was anything but perfect. But secondly, the second thing that's so important about the Reformation is it simply must not ever be over until Christ returns. If we are committed to Scripture alone, and faith alone, and grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone, then every generation must not only capture that spirit personally, but must work out the far-reaching implications of that and commit ourselves to an ever-increasing scriptural fidelity in which we continue to work out how far-reaching these matters actually are in every matter of faith and in practice. And in the end, The spirit of the Reformation needs to propel us forward so that, above all things, our glory is not in the Reformers, but in a gracious God who has called us in the Scriptures to place our trust in Christ. To Him alone be the glory. O Heavenly Father, I pray that we would fall in love again with You, O God, who have revealed Yourself in sacred Scripture. May we see Christ with clarity and count on His works and never our own. In Jesus' name, amen. John, this has been a wonderful series. But the reality is, it's not the Reformation or the people of the Reformation that's critical. It's really one thing that's most important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others, I mean, they're not the new pope. We, we uh, find that we have so much to learn from them. But if they did anything for us, they, they called us to trust in the Bible and also to put our faith in Christ. So uh, that's the great (laughs) discovery of that time, and we need to be so thankful to them for that. What a great opportunity we've had to dig deep into the Word of God. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. There has never been a more popular ministry resource over the years than our annual Bible reading calendar, and this year will be no exception. So our 2017 Bible scripture reading calendar entitled Defining Moments of Faith is now available. With a theme based on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the calendar depicts and describes many of the most picturesque and relevant locations and introduces some of the most influential people of the period. But the calendar's primary goal remains the same, to guide you through reading the Bible in a year using Dr. John Newfeld's unique reading plan. So ask for your copy today, one free per household by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Quantities are limited, so don't delay. And if you've enjoyed this series, Remembering the Reformation, 
Remember, you can purchase your own copy on CD or re-listen to any episode online at backtothebible.ca. And please don't forget to help us sustain and grow the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible by making a donation by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.